Hey there, I'm the Kentucky Guy, and thank you so much for listening to the Red Pill Current News Podcast. Here at the Red Pill Current News Podcast, we strive on bringing you news that you won't find in the fake media every day. We also strive to bring you the truth, not only on politics, but the world news all around, including pop culture and so forth. As for myself, I worked in the private sector for around 25 years in the call center management and health insurance industry. Uh, Due to unforeseen circumstances and health issues, I was forced into early retirement last year. Now, a couple years ago, I noticed that something just wasn't sitting right with the way our country was being ran or being politicized as. So I started doing research, a lot of research. And that's why I'm able to now host this podcast. I've been on other shows as well, discussing my views. I'm also on social media. I'm on The Clapper, Rizzle, TikTok, Truth Social, Facebook, and many more. You can find me at the KY Guy, Kentucky Guy, KY Guy, or KY Guy 80. Different ones. Somebody had my name on other platforms, of course. <laughs> All right. So, yes, and I uh, do want to let you know that we do drop a new episode here every every Wednesday and Saturday. So be sure to uh, hit that follow or subscribe button. No matter where you're listening to, we are on all podcast platforms. All right. So I hope you enjoyed today's show. And again, God bless and God bless America. and welcome to the Red Pill Current News Podcast. I'm your host, the Kentucky Guy, and welcome back to the special report, Devolution Part 7. All right, folks, thank you guys so much for joining us. Uh, We do drop new episodes here every Wednesday and Saturday. However, we've been dropping, uh, we're in the special report right now. And, uh, yeah, we want to make sure that uh, we inform you on everything possible uh, that's going on. This special report, uh, to me, I think, is one of the most important things that I've done uh, on this podcast. Um, I, uh, If you don't know the story, by the way, if you're just now joining this special report, please go back, start at episode one. Uh, episode one is uh, titled, uh, Did Trump Really Turn Us Over to Criminals? Uh, It's important to start at number one because you're going to be lost. Uh, I promise you, you will be lost uh, listening uh, to this. Uh, So I did want to make a couple of special announcements before we get into today's news. Uh, First of all, um, on Wednesday's show, we do have a special guest, uh, Jay Helquist. Uh, He he was actually uh, uh, an intern for a... uh, Appointed judge that was appointed by Reagan. Uh, he was a lifelong Republican. However, uh, he uh, actually changed and he's left now. He turned. Uh, 
He went over to the left side uh, until around 2015. So it's going to be very interesting because he kind of took a different road than I did. A uh, completely different road, actually. Uh, also, for you wrestling fans, uh, we do I do host Against the Mat, Against the Mat Wrestling Podcast. Uh, and we do have an episode uh, that's going to be uploading later. Uh, basically... Uh, I have a I have a special guest on there as well. We do drop episodes on there every Monday and Friday. Uh, the special guest today, he's a comedian and a uh, host of No ID podcast, uh, Jerome Davis. So he's going to be joining us today on Against the Match Wrestling Podcast. So uh, very very interesting. So before I get into Devolution Part Seven, uh, I want to go over a little bit of the geopolitical and political economic news. That's happening in our land. So let's uh, let's do that. All right. So the WHO. You guys remember me talking about them? You remember me talking about them? The World Health Organization. Uh, Biden back in January uh, sent them a a, a secret declaration, uh, giving them com- control over 194 nations. Oh, I'm so glad, I'm so glad that countries like Africa and Brazil stood up to this. Because now the WHO is declaring monkeypox outbreak a global health emergency. Quote from them, the rapidly spreading monkeypox outbreak represents a global health emergency. The WHO Director General Tedros Adamakadabadi said during, I know I pronounced that wrong, uh, said during a media briefing on Saturday, the WHO labeled a public health emergency of international concern is designed to sound an alarm that coordinated international response is needed and could unlock funding and global efforts to collaborate on sharing vaccines and treatments. This is, my friends, the way they're going to try to lock us down once again. Do not fall for this. Okay, so first of all, Biden was going to declare a, uh, I don't know what you call a heat emergency, uh, weather emergency. I, I don't know. I mean, they're crazy, right? But he was going in that direction. He was. Now, my intel, and thank you, John, and, and everybody else that reaches out. Uh, by the way, if you ever want to be a part of the show or you have uh, any type of Maybe Intel. Uh, uh, and I've noticed that I've got a couple new 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 people, and I've checked them out, and uh, their information is good. So if you got anything, or you just want to be a part of the show, or you just want to comment, feel free to always email us at ol Kentucky. That's ol Kentucky ninety nine at yahoo dot com. Now, uh, so this is their opportunity to get us locked in. They missed that power. They missed that power. They miss people walking around with masks on, and they miss having us locked down, and they miss, uh, you know, midterms are coming up. Monkeypox is spread through homosexuality. So how are they telling us that infants and kids are getting it? I've, I've researched monkeypox. Come on, man, you know. I mean, I knew, I knew, and I, I broke the story uh, a month ago or two that uh, the U.S. had bought an extremely outrageous number 
of monkeypox vaccine. This is their plan. It's not going to work. People are awake now. It's not when COVID hit. People know who actually the WHO are and their agenda. Everything that these globalist New World Order freaks try to do, everything they touch is falling apart. It is. And we're going to see more. We're going to see more. And this here is not going to work. Do not fall for it. And I know that my audience, I know you're too smart. You're, you're not going to fall for it. Something very interesting, very, very interesting, also in the news. Uh, BlackRock. You guys remember them? They're kind of like the the Bilderberg uh, company, only they, uh, you know, they have so much more money, uh, but a lot of the same members. If you if you research it, uh, a lot of the same members. These are the elitists. This is the one percent that think they run the world. And there's just you know, there's like a thousand of them. There's a millions of us. You know, I don't know what these guys. I don't know what they're thinking, but there's millions of us. So anyways, BlackRock's ESG agenda backfiring as the firm reports a $1.7 trillion loss. So the BlackRock company, they've pushed the companies to invest, and that's what they are. They're an investment financial uh, group that, uh, you know, they... they uh, <laughs> they, uh, you know, they assess managements and they uh, advise you. They're financial advisors, so they push companies uh, to invest into adopting ESG goals, uh, which include the pursuit of renewable energy, appointing token minorities in management positions, and sacrificing profit to push for social justice. Well, the asset management firm BlackRock lost. $1.7 trillion of its clients' investments. Remember, not their money, but still, it hurts. Uh, client investments since 2022. The figure represent, represents the largest sum ever lost by a single firm in a six-month period, according to Bloomberg analysis. In the report, which was published on Wednesday of last week, BlackRock, which maintains holdings in Apple, Microsoft and Amazon revealed uh, an extended of the carnage during an investor call last week. Uh, 2022 ranks as the worst start in 50 years for both stocks and bonds, said the chairman and chief executive officer, Larry Fink. According to Rubenstein, uh, BlackRock's massive loss comes due to its reliance on passive investments, which often suffers during short-term declines in the stock market. While a few firms are able to avoid what the market throws at them, some at least try to overcome it. BlackRock is increasingly giving up. At the end of June, only about a quarter of its assets were actively managed to beat a benchmark. Rather than track it seamlessly as passive strategies are designed to do. The down, that's down from a third when BlackRock acquired uh, Barclays Global Investors in 2009 to become the leading player in exchange traded funds, Rubenstein explained. So, once again, 
go woke, go broke. Look at Victoria's Secrets. It's all over the news. They went woke. They're going broke. I mean, guys, this stuff does not work. Socialism, uh, uh, you know, Marxist type of uh, government, it does not work. Just look around. Look what's happening. You know, I talked to, I talked about uh, Sri Lanka on a couple episodes ago. Uh, just look around what's happening, folks. Just open your eyes. And then the Pope. Yeah, first time we talked about him in a while. Pope's indigenous tour signals a rethink of mission legacy. Pope Francis's trip to Canada to apologize for the horrors of church-run indignities residential schools marks a radical rethink of the Catholic Church missionary legacy. Spurred on by the first pope from the Americas and the discovery of hundreds of probable graves at a school site in Canada. So the Pope said his week-long visit, which begins, which actually began yesterday, is a potential pilgrimage to beg forgiveness as Canadian soil for the evil done to Native peoples by Catholic missionaries. It follows his April apology in the Vatican for the generations of trauma and indigenous people suffered as a result of a church-enforced policy to eliminate their culture and assimilment uh, into Canadian Christian society. Francis's tone of personal repentance has signaled a notable shift for the papacy, which has long acknowledged abuses in the residential schools and strongly asserted the rights and dignity of the indigenous peoples. But past popes have also held the sacrifice and holiness of the European Catholic missionaries who brought Christianity to the Americans, something Francis, too, has done but isn't expected to emphasize during his trip. Cardinal Michael Caesari, a Canadian Jesuit who is a top papal advisor, recalled that earlier on in his papacy, Francis asserted that no single culture could claim a hold on Christianity and that the church cannot demand that people on other continents uh, imitate the European way of expressing the faith. Quote, if this, is, if this conviction had been accepted by anyone, by everyone involved in the centuries after the discovery of the Americas, much suffering would have been avoided. Great developments would have occurred and the Americas would be all around better, he told the Associate Press. The trip won't be easy for the 85-year-old Francis or for residential school survivors and their families. Francis can no longer walk without assistance and will be using a wheelchair and a cane because of a painful strained knee ligaments. Uh, trauma experts are being deployed at all events to provide mental health assistance for school survivors giving the likelihood of triggering memories. Quote, It is an understatement to say that there are mixed emotions, said Chief Desmond Bull of the Lewis Bull tribe, one of the first nations that are a part of the Maskawaski territory. 
where Francis will deliver his first sweeping apology on Monday, today, uh, near the site of a former residential school. Now, not everybody's for this. I don't quite understand it. Um, I, I did one. I, I think it's important to share, to get it out there, but I don't really understand it. Now, uh, I announced on the last uh, special episode that um, Steve Bannon was found guilty uh, and could serve up to uh, two years total for the misdemeanor. Uh, I want you guys to know that he is appealing uh, that decision, and good for him. Come to find out, the judge really didn't let him have any type of defense, right? I mean, it was in Washington. Of course, the jury was uh, biased. You know, I mean, there are a bunch of uh, liberal Democrats and everything, and I'm glad that he is uh, appealing this because I think it's going to get turned over. It's got to get turned over. It's a, it's a, I mean, what are we saying to people? Uh, you can have a, a non-bipartisan January 6th committee uh, send a subpoena, and if you don't follow it, then you're going to go to jail? I mean, phew. and just for you that are on the fence about your precious Democratic Party, on Friday, your House Democrats rejected a resolution condemning recent attacks on churches and anti-abortion centers and groups. Yeah, so on Friday, House resolution was uh, introduced by Representative Mike Johnson, uh, Representative uh, Republican from uh, L.A., uh, one, two, three, three called on the Biden administration to use all appropriate law enforcement authorities to uphold public safety and protect the rights of the pro-life facilities, groups, and churches. The, you know, in this resolution, it noted that in May of this year, since the leak of the opinion of Dobbs versus Jackson, uh, you know, woman health organization, individual uh, professing anti, uh, anti-life anti views have targeted, destroyed, and vandalized numerous pro-life facilities, groups, and even churches to uh, further their radical cases. Ever since the Dobbs decision, crisis pregnancy centers have been subjected to a nationwide spat of violence. Enough is enough. Uh, and he's right. He's absolutely right. Anti-abortion centers, Catholic churches, and other organizations that oppose abortion have been targeted across the U.S. in the wake of the Supreme Court overturning of Roe v. Wade. According to uh, the Catholic News Agency, 77 incidents of vandalism have been recorded. Jane's Revenge, boy, that group there, they better repent. An abortion rights group has claimed responsibility for some of the attacks in a letter published in June uh, declared open season, an anti-abortion pregnancy center. Quote from this radical piece of garbage, we will never stop, back down, slow down, or retreat. We did not want this, but it is upon us, and so we must deal with the proportionality. We exist in confluence and solitary with others in the struggle for complete liberation, members of the Jane uh, 
revenge said in the letter. Uh, yeah, so these guys are um, terrorists, the true domestic terrorists, and they need to uh, be dealt with and dealt with swiftly. All right, so let's go ahead and before we get into uh, Winston Churchill's speech, let's, uh, let's go ahead and take a break for this episode from our sponsor, Anchor. If you're thinking about starting a, web, uh, a podcast or you already have a podcast, I recommend Anchor because Anchor has everything all in one place. Hey, guys, have you heard about Anchor by Spotify? It's the best and easiest way I've found to start a new podcast. Everything is right there. At Anchor, I can not only record my podcast, I can add music, I can add sounds, and much more. Also, I can trim and crop my podcast as well, all in one place, right there on my iPhone or computer. On Anchor, as a host, you can distribute your podcast on platforms like Spotify, Apple, and Google Podcasts, and many more. Everything is in one place. Oh yeah, I almost forgot. Best part of all, Anchor is totally free. Download the Anchor app today or go to anchor.fm to get started. Aha. All right, and welcome back to the Red Pill Current News Podcast. I'm the Kentucky Guy. All right, so let's get into Devolution Part 7. Now, I was able to find an audio recording of Churchill's speech. Now, I, I think this this is important, and it relates to today. Uh, so I'm going to include it right now. Um, if you don't want to hear this speech for some reason, all you have to do is skip ahead six minutes and eight seconds once it begins. Exactly six minutes and eight seconds is the end of the speech. I think it's very important. I think it's worth it. If you've been following Devolution since part one, I think you're going to find it extremely important as well. Um, I want you to look at, I want you to listen, look, shoot, sorry. I want you to listen to a couple things that uh, he points out of the British or the American, uh, mainly the American. I cut out all the stuff just about that he said about the British, uh, or it had been a lot longer of a speech. Uh, but the American Constitution is certainly not a chop logic or uh, pandemic, pandemic uh, interrepresentation. Uh, so the August, a body as the Supreme Court in dealing with law must also deal with the life of the United States. So listen to some of these words that he said. It's a very powerful speech. So I want you guys to listen to it. When we get back, we'll start on the next subject, okay? Remember, if you don't want to hear it, when it begins, just start at six minutes. Just skip forward six minutes and eight seconds, and you can skip it. I don't recommend that, but you can. Oh, don't jury. 
when one considers the immense size of the United States and the extraordinary contrasts of climate and character which differentiate the 48 sovereign states of the American Union, as well as the inevitable conflict of interests between North and South and between East and West. It would seem that the participants of so vast a federation have the right to effectual guarantees upon the fundamental laws and that these should not be easily changed to suit a particular emergency or fraction of the country. The founders of the Union, although its corpus was then so much smaller, realized this with profound conviction. They did not think it possible to entrust legislation for so diverse a community and enormous an area to a simple majority. They were as well acquainted with the follies and intolerance of parliaments as with the oppression of princes to control the powers and conduct of the legislature, said a leading member of the Convention of 1787, by an overruling constitution, was an improvement in the science and practice of government reserved to the American states. Single quote, all the great names of American history can be invoked behind this principle. Why should it be considered obsolete? If today we are framing the Constitution for a United States of Europe for which so many thinkers on this side of the ocean aspire, fixed and almost unalterable guarantees would be required by the exceeding nations. It may well be that this very quality of rigidity, which is today thought to be so galling, has been a prime factor in founding the greatness of the United States. In the shelter of the Constitution, nature has been conquered. A mighty continent has been brought under the sway of man, and an economic entity established unrivaled in the whole history of the globe. In this small island of Britain we make laws for ourselves. But if we had again attempted to apply this flexibility and freedom to the British Empire, and to frame an imperial constitution to make laws for the whole body, it would have been broken to pieces. Although we have a free flexible constitution at the center and for the center of the empire. Nothing is more rigid than the established practice, namely, that we claim no powers to interfere with the affairs of its self-governing component parts. No supreme court is needed to enforce this rule. We have learned the lessons of the past too well. And here we must note a dangerous misuse of terminology. Taking the rigidity out of the American constitution means and is intended to mean new gigantic accessions of power to the dominating center of government and giving it the means to make new fundamental laws enforceable upon all American citizens. Such a departure in the British Empire by a chance parliamentary majority or even by aggregate dominion parliamentary majorities would shatter it to bits. The so-called rigidity of the American Constitution is in fact the guarantee of freedom to its widespread component parts as a set of persons, however eminent, carried into office upon some populist heap should have the power to make the will of a bare majority effective over the whole of the United States might cause disasters upon the greatest scale from which recovery would not be swift or easy. I was reading the other day a recent American novel by Sinclair Lewis, It Can't Happen Here. Such books render a public service to the English-speaking world. When we see what has happened in Germany, Italy and Russia, we cannot neglect their warning. This is an age in which the citizen requires more, and not less, legal protection in the exercise of his rights and liberties. 
That is doubtless why, after all the complaints against the rigidity of the United States Constitution and the threats of a presidential election on this issue, none of the suggested constitutional amendments has so far been adopted by the administration. This may explain why the nine old men of the Supreme Court have not been more seriously challenged. But the challenge may come at a later date though it would perhaps be wiser to dissociate it from any question of the age of the judges, lest it be the liberal element in the court which is weakened. Now, at the end of these reflections, I must strike a minor and different note. The rigidity of the Constitution of the United States is the shield of the common man. But that rigidity ought not to be interpreted by pedants. In England, we continually give new interpretation to the archaic language of our fundamental institutions, and this is no new thing in the United States. The judiciary have obligations which go beyond expounding the mere letter of the law. The Constitution must be made to work. A true interpretation, however, of the British or the American Constitution is certainly not a chop logic or pedantic interpretation. Sir August, a body as the Supreme Court in dealing with law must also deal with the life of the United States. And words, however solemn, are only true when they preserve their vital relationship to fact. It would certainly be a great disaster, not only to the American Republic but to the whole world. If a violent collision should take place between the large majority of the American people and the great instrument of government which has so long presided over their expanding fortunes, Winston F. Churchill, What Gives the Constitution? Collier's 98, August 22, 1936. Prologue. So as you can see, that's a that's a very, very powerful speech. And I, and I wanted you guys to hear that because you can kind of see how that plays in uh, with a lot, a lot that's been going on uh, these last two years. Now, of course, this speech wasn't, I mean, this speech was many, many years ago, but, uh, and it wasn't actually a speech, it was an article that he wrote for the paper. Let me, let me reemphasize that. It's an article that he wrote. I just happened to find audio of it, and, uh, instead of me reading that long speech, <laughs> uh, I wanted to cut, I was able to cut out stuff that didn't matter about the, you know, about, uh, about Europe and so forth. I mean, we're mainly worried about, uh, I wanted to make the point on what the United States is going through, which, which actually the world's going through. But let me tell you something, folks. They have to have the United States for this new world order, this crap to work. If they don't get us, and they're not going to, but if they don't get us, then the rest of it falls. We are the pinnacle of the world. Whether you believe that or not, we are. And I, that's why I never understand people who hate America. We're, we are the pinnacle of the world. People all over the world want to come here. Don't believe me? Look at our borders. Check it out. Okay, so let's move on. So I know that I've been very, very critical on this podcast and uh, on all my social media about Mike Pence being a traitor. However, there's optics to war. So I'm going to go over some stuff uh, about Mike Pence 
and I want the listeners to at least keep an open mind here, okay? Uh, you know, we we as we do research and we learn things, we grow. So, you know, I, myself, uh, I am not perfect by no means necessary, you know. And uh, so, so as I get into this, I want you guys to keep an open mind. Now, some of you who follow uh, everything that's happening might say, well, he just had a dueling uh, uh, debate supporting the opposite candidate that Trump's supporting uh, Carrie Lake in Arizona uh, just this weekend. That's true. I don't know all the optics here. I really don't. Uh, I don't. I, I just don't. I, I'm not in that clique. I don't know. I have one side of intel telling me that Mike Pence has never uh, betrayed Trump ever. And this is all. And, and, and that, that same group is telling me that this General Milley, uh, he is with Trump as well. Uh, it's all optics. And then I have another group of intel telling me that those two are complete traitors. And don't fall for it. So you see what I'm saying? So I am just going to give the research to you, and you make your own mind up. That's all I can do here, okay? And I know that according to January 6, 2020, it will always be remembered as a stain uh, in America's history. And for Mike Pence... Uh, it had to be one of the most difficult days of his life. So many Americans who once admired him as a patriot, uh, he became a Judas. He did in my eyes too at first. But if you if you listen to this entire series to this point, you're either believing that devolution is actually happening or you at least have an open mind to it. Even if you're not convinced, I know some of you aren't, whichever describes you, I ask that you listen to the upcoming letter with following assumptions to fully understand what I'm trying to say. So first of all, devolution is happening. Trump suspended the electoral college votes. Biden, assuming office, had to happen. Now, with those assumptions as a pretext, let's just go through the letter Mike Pence wrote on January 6, 2021, the day of the elect, uh, electrical college voting. I'm not going to read it all. I'm just going to read some stuff that matters here. Uh, I share the concerns of millions of Americans about the integrity of this election. The American people chose the American president and have every right under the law to demand free and fair elections and full investigation of electrical, uh, electoral misconduct. And the elect representatives of the American people will make their decision. So right away he tells us uh, he will be doing his duty as the presiding officer under our Constitution. He goes on to tell us that he shares concerns regarding the election fraud and states the American people choose the American president. 
it's kind of interesting how he added American uh, as it as it was already implied and have the right under law to demand free and fair elections and full investigation uh, electoral mis misconducts. So he knows it's our right to choose the president and that the electoral uh, fraud should be looked into. But he also knows it's the role of the elected representatives uh, to handle uh, these situations as they arise during the electoral college vote. It's not his job to interject. Check this out. The, the president, this is also part of his letter, the president is the chief executive officer of the federal government under our Constitution, possessing immense power to impact the lives of the American people. The presidency belongs to the American people and them alone, which disputes concerning a presidential election arises under federal law. It is the people's representatives who review the evidence and resolve disputes through a democratic process. Our fathers were deeply skeptical of uh, concentrations of power and created republic based on uh, separation of powers and checks the balances under the Constitution of the United States. Again, he's telling us the, pres the presidency belongs to the American people. And I believe he's telling us that he knows there was foreign interference. Right? Um, and then the other part was when disputes concerning a presidential election arises under federal law, it's the people's representatives who review the evidence and disputes through a democratic process. This could be Pence referring to election audits. It is the people's representatives, state legislator, who review the evidence, forensic audits. He could also be referring uh, to members of Congress not to actually uh, begin the duly elected, not the actually being the duly elected members of Congress. It is the people's representatives who review the evidence. What if the people's representatives aren't the ones who were truly elected? How big was this fraud? How many in Congress are not legitimate? He goes on. <clears throat> Vice presidents uh, presiding over joint sessions have, uh, have followed the, oh, have followed the elect electoral count act. Uh, he is not, okay, sorry. So the Supreme Court Justice Joseph Bradley wrote the following. This is still part of his letter. Uh, election of 1876, the powers of the President, of the Senate, and merely uh, ministerial. He is not invested with any authority for making any investigation outside of the joint meeting of the two houses. If any examination at all is to be gone into or any judgment exercised in uh, relation to the votes received, it must be performed and exercised by the two houses. More recently, 
as the U.S. Uh, the former U.S. Uh, Court of Appeals judge Jay Michael uh, observed, the only responsibility and the power of the vice president under the Constitution is to faithfully uh, count the electoral college votes as they have been cast. Adding, the Constitution does not empower the vice president to alien in any way the votes uh, that have been cast by rejecting certain state or yeah certain states or otherwise. So he's again t- telling us that this isn't his duty in his role while presiding over the electoral college vote to interject. His only responsibility and power is to faithfully count the electoral college voters votes as they have been cast. He knows the votes were cast fraudulently but his constitutional role prevents him from acting on it. It is in my considered judgment, this is back to Mike's letter, Mike Pence's letter, considered judgment that my oath to support and defend the Constitution uh, constrains me from claiming unlateral authority to determine which electoral votes should be counted and which should not. While my role as presiding officer is largely ceremonial, ceremonial, uh, the role of the Congress is much different. And the Electoral Count Act of 1887 establishes a clear procedure to address election uh, controversies when they arise during the count of the vote of the Electoral College votes. Uh, given the voting uh, in uh, irregularities sorry uh, <laughs> that took place this is real very very small uh, in November elections and the disregard of state election statutes by some officials I welcome the efforts of the Senate and House members who have stepped forward uh, to use their authority under the law to raise objections and present evidence so here, Pence is bringing up his oath. I'll come back to that again, right? Uh, and he states that his constitutional rule prevents him from uh, injecting, uh, interjecting in the vote. He then specifically brings up Congress and their duty to address the electional, election controversies uh, when they arise during the count of the vote of the Electrical College. He welcomes them to use their authority under the law to raise objections and present evidence. This is his way of telling us that if anybody is going to be able to prevent the stolen election, it's going to be the members of the joint session of Congress during the Electoral College vote. Today it will be my duty. This is back to Mike's letter, uh, Mike Pence's letter. Today it will be my duty when the Congress concedes in joint session to count the votes of the Electoral College, and I will do so to the best of my ability. I only ask that the representatives and the senators who will be assembled before me approach this moment with the same sense of duty and open mind uh, setting policies and personal interests aside and do our part to 
faithfully discharge our duties under the Constitution. So that is so important. He says, I only ask representatives and senators who assemble before me approach this moment with the same sense of duty and open mind, setting politics and personal interests aside, and to do our duties under the Constitution. So at the opening of a new Congress, representatives beginning their six-year term must recite what is called the Congressional Oath of Office. And basically it is, uh, you will support and defend the Constitution of the United States against all enemies, foreign and domestic, faithfully discharge the duties of this office on which you are about to enter. So he's reminding the Congress of their oath of office, and he uses some of the exact same language to do this, faithfully discharge our duties. It's almost as if Mr. Pence is giving them a lifeline, like an out. He's telling them, do the right thing for their country and not go through with allowing a presidential election to be stolen. Then at the end, uh, Mr. Pence says, uh, I took an oath and support and defend the Constitution. So help me God. Today I want uh, to assure the American people that I will keep the oath I made to them and I will keep the oath that I made to the Almighty God. I will do my duty. In the mere circumstance with our Constitution and history. So help me God. So once again, he assured us that he would keep his oath to us and to God uh, and support and defend the Constitution of the United States against enemies. So I really, I'm, I can't help but to think Mike Pence was true to his word. Because, and I know what Trump says and I, or what they say publicly, but by not doing an extraordinary or inconsistent with the constitutional role he had, during the electoral college votes, Mike Pence actually did one of the most extraordinary things a vice president has ever done. By doing his duty, he gave Congress the opportunity to choose their fate. You see, devolution, I believe, was already in motion, and his role was to allow Biden to win the elector, uh, electoral college vote if Congress let it get that far. Even though he knew many people would brand him as a traitor, he did exactly what the moment required. So in kind of a strange way, Mike Pence did the right thing. Yeah, I know that's hard to swallow for some of us, but, I mean, facts are facts. He really couldn't do without breaking his duty at the... Con and, and, and who is someone who... Uh, always, always, always mentions the Constitution, and they want to do things the right way by American, by the American Constitution, by law, and everything. Donald Trump. Optics. I'm telling you, there's so many optics. When this all comes out, uh, it it is going to it's going to shake the earth, man. Uh, it, it's uh, when everything comes out. Uh, I just, you know, the more I, the more I dove into this research when I was doing this, I, I just, uh, I was amazed. I was really amazed. I was so blinded and didn't realize so many things. You know, I was stupid. I was thinking that they're gonna, 
arrest everybody on TV in January 20th as soon as they said the oath. And, and I mean, you know, I fell for that stuff. But then I got to dig deeper into who Donald Trump is. And he's all about our Constitution. He's all about the rule of law. And uh, that's my fault. I, I was just I was so blind, man. You know, I, I was. I'm guilty. I was. So, yeah, so let's, uh, so let me go ahead and uh, start setting up for the next part of devolution. Uh, the Joint Chiefs of Staff is a body of the most senior uh, uniform leaders within the United States Department of Defense. Uh, their primary function is to serve as advisors to the President of the United States, the Secretary of Defense, the Homeland Security Council, and the National Security Council on Military Matters. The Joint Chiefs of Staff consists of a chairman, a vice chairman, and the service chiefs of the Army, Marine, uh, Marine Corps, Navy, Air Force, Space Force, and the chief of the National Guard Bureau. Each of, each of the individual service chiefs uh, outside outside their JSC obligations work directly under the secretaries of their respective military departments. The Secretary of the Army, the Secretary of the Navy, and the Secretary of the Air Force. So the Joint Chief of Staffs are nowhere within the chain of command. And, but the executive authority of a Chief of Staff has changed. In World War II, the U.S. Uh, Chiefs of Staff acted as executive agents in dealing with uh, threat and areas of, com of com uh, communism. But the original National Security Act of 1947 saw that the Joint Chiefs of Staff um, as primary and advisors not as commanders of a confident commands so so the so let's let's talk about them for just a minute here because this is important so the chiefs of staff right so their role changes and it changed uh, after World War II. Today, though, the Joint Chiefs of Staff have no executive authority to command uh, combatant forces. Uh, the issues of executive authority was clearly resolved by the uh, Goldwater uh, Nicholas DOD uh, Reorganization Act of 1986. The secretaries of the military departments shall assign all forces under the jurisdiction uh, to unite and specify combatant commands to perform missions assigned uh, to those commands. So the chain of command runs from the president to the secretary of defense and from the secretary of defense to the commander of the combatant command. So as part of their advisory role, the Joint Chiefs of Staff created what is called the Joint Doctrine. 
and basically the joint doctrine constitutes uh, constitutes official advice. However, the judgment of the commander is paramount in all situations. So the joint the joint chiefs outlined the joint doctrine through a series of joint publications. These publications offered a trove of information which provided us an in-depth look at how the military operates. The first thing to point out here is that these JPs, uh, joint uh, publications, is the function and priorities of the DOD and the military. So right here, function of Department of Defense. As, as prescribed by higher authority, DOD will maintain and employ armed forces to support and defend the Constitution of the United States against all enemies, foreign and domestic, ensure by timely and effective military action that the security of the United States, its territories and areas vital to its interest, uphold and advance the national policies and interests of the United States, and homeland defense. So, I mentioned earlier in an earlier episode that the military began actively sur uh, surveying the uh, 2020 riots. The surveillance resulted in a major pushback from Congress and the MSM. So June, 30, uh, June 3, 2020, a letter to the Department of Defense re uh, regarding uh, Insurrection Act. Listen to these dates. June 9, 2020, a letter to FBI, NG, CBP, DEA on government surveillance of protesters. July 15, 2020, Congress must seize this chance to help uh, demilitarize, demilitarize law enforcement. August 7, 2020, Trump and Barr used a loophole to deploy the National Guard to U.S. cities. It's time to close it. So there's just a few examples that convey the narrative that Trump's enemies were trying to create. We know that the President Trump started using the military for surveillance activities no later than June 1st of 2020, and he didn't invoke the Insurrection Act to do so, at least not that we know of. I firmly believe this justification for involving the military came from the joint publication of the Homeland Defense which had in there, Homeland Defense is a constitutional exception to the PCA, military operations conducted as a, as a home defense and not LE acti activities, and this, Title 10, USC, uh, focuses are not subject to the restriction of the PCE. So again, I'll point out that I believe devolution has been implemented because we are in fact at war. A point which I uh, really believe, uh, and I solidify, uh, I'll go over it here in just a moment. Our military has a constitutional requirement to make the defense of our homeland their first priority. As such, the military's involvement in the surveillance of protests and election theft only serve to make devolution an even more visible scenario, as it clearly indicates that these matters are of vital interest to our national security. So in order to fully understand how devolution would uh, be enacted through the military, it's important to understand the chain of command within our Department of Defense. Everything starts at the top 
with our president, the commander-in-chief of our armed forces. From there, the chain of command goes to the secretary of defense and then the combatant commanders. The combatant commanders, also known as the uh, unified combatant commands, are the highest possible of military command. And they, over, and they are overseen by what's called the Unified Command Plan, which sets forth basic guidance to all unified combatant commanders by it established their missions, responsibilities, and force structure. Uh, it, uh, the, uh, it delegates the general geographical area of responsibility for geographic combatant commanders. It specifies functional responsibilities for, uh, for functional combatant commanders. What are the combatant commanders and who are the combatant commanders? Well, I'm going to go over that and then we'll, we'll close this episode out. There are 11 combatant commanders in total, each falling into a category designated as a geographical or a functional Seven of the combatant commanders are designated as geographic graphical, meaning they are responsible for all operations within a clearly defined actual location on or above uh, the earth, such as Africa or space. They call these geographical locations the area of responsibility. The combatant commanders of the geographic are listed actually you know what let me let's go over them uh, along with the dates they took office here uh, US Northern Commander General Glenn D uh, Valark uh, August 20th 2020 uh, US Southern Commander uh, Craig S Fowler uh, the 25th of November 2018 uh, US European Commander Todd uh, D. Walters, uh, the 3rd of May of 2019, U.S. Africa American uh, Commander, uh, Stephen J. Townsend, July 26, uh, 2019, U.S. Central Command, uh, Kenneth F. McKenzie, Jr., uh, the 28th of March of 2019, uh, U.S. Indo-Pacific Commander, John C. Aquilin, uh, April 30th, 2021, U.S. Space Commander, James H. Dickinson, August 20th, 2020. Four of these commanders are designated as functional, uh, meaning they are responsible for a clearly defined specific type of operation. But across all geographical uh, and uh, sporadical lines, for example, cyber or special operations operating worldwide across geographic Boundaries allows the functional commanders to provide unique capabilities in geographic commanders. Uh, the combat commanders of the functional commanders are Richard D. Clark, March 29, 2019. Paul M. Uh, Nicholson, uh, May 4, 2018. Charles A. Richards, November 18, 2019. And Stephen R. Loins, August 24th, 2018. So to assume the rank of a combatant commander, the four-star general is recommended 
by the Security uh, Defense, nominated for the appointment by the President of the United States, confirmed by the Senate and Commission, at the President's order by the Secretary of Defense of the 11 current combatant commanders, 10 of them were in, uh, installed during Trump's presidency. The only one who has not been installed during uh, Biden's presidency is Admiral John C. Aquilin, commander of the U.S. Indio Pacific Command. It took me a moment to uh, reconcile one of the commanders having been installed with uh, Biden in office, but I came across this article which uh, kind of eased my mind. Uh, Fort Schaefer, Hawaii, General Charles A. Flynn assumed the command of the U.S. Army Pacific from General Paul J. Lacarma in a ceremony held on June 4, 2021 on Historical Palm Circle at Fort Schaefer, Hawaii. Uh, Admiral John C. Quillum, commander of U.S. Uh, Indo-Pacific Command, presided over the ceremony and reflected on the significance of this command. U.S. Army Pacific Command is a vital part of our approach to generate a lethal combined joint force distributed west of the international dateline that can be protected, sustained, and capable of fully integrating with all of our allies and partners, he said. So now, knowing that uh, Aquilin oversaw General uh, Charles Flynn's promotion, uh, that's very important. So the Secretary of the Army is in charge of promoting the, the commander of the U.S. Army's Pacific Command. But I can't imagine he'd promote somebody if the combatant commander wouldn't agree with it. We know the Flynn family is full of patriots. So I'm sold here that the Admiral uh, Aqualan is a patriot as well. All right, so that is about all the time we do have for today's episode. I uh, hope you guys are enjoying this uh, special report series. Uh, we will get into the importance of understanding uh, uh, these combatant commanders. I know it's a lot of information. I know that. Uh, but I want. But I didn't want to keep going because I didn't want to wear you guys out. But I will get into why it's important that we understand these structures and how they play into devolution. All right, so you've been listening to the Red Pill Current News Podcast. I'm your host, the Kentucky Guy. I hope you guys have a great rest of the day, and uh, new episodes are coming. New episodes. Don't forget, you wrestling fans, we do have special guest, comedian, and host of uh, No ID Podcast, Jerome Davis, will be with us on this episode today on Against the Mat Wrestling Podcast. Hey, you guys have a wonderful day. Thank you so much for joining.